Welcome to the Philocrosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, uh, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. This in-season edition of the Philocrosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time a cool watch company focused on custom timepieces that commemorate life's greatest achievements. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is best known for being the goalie that was dunked on by Gary Gate in the Air Gate in that 1988 Final Four game. Oxia makes beautiful Swiss-made self-winding watches whose design and quality match the essence of the memories they represent. Andy and I can attest to the quality. We each own a Brown University Oxia watch, and it's pretty much the nicest thing we own. One of Oxia's specialties is creating timepieces to celebrate storied team or championship victories. Check out the 2021 UVA National Championship watches or the Cornell lacrosse team watches we created last year. You should really see the University of Georgia football team national championship watches or the Deerfield Academy lacrosse team watch to commemorate their national championship in 2021. New for this season, Oxia is creating All-American watches to celebrate the student-athletes that earn this incredible achievement. They have designed unique timepieces for high school boys and girls and college men and women. If you want a custom watch to commemorate life's greatest accomplishments, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Philocrosophy Podcast, and I am really excited to welcome Alex Sarama to the podcast. Alex is the head coach of college prep in Italy. He's formerly of the NBA Europe and is currently also a part of uh, the creative director for Basketball Immersion, which is one of the top uh, sites for basketball information um, on the web. Um, Alex, welcome to the show. So fired up to talk some uh, basketball and lacrosse with you. Jamie, thanks so much for having me on. It's an honor. I really love your content too. And uh, really excited to see where this conversation takes us today. Totally. Um, all right. So I want to kick it off with a, a uh, article that you did, a blog post uh, titled something like, do we really need fundamentals before we can play the game? Um, this for everybody out there is like literally one of the best articles I've ever read on the topic of fundamentals of skills of what they are, how they work, how people learn. Um, so let's dive right into that because I think it's incredibly interesting. And, and we'll talk a little bit about dynamic systems and ecological psychology. Um, but why don't you talk to me a little bit about why you wrote that article and, and what it really means? Absolutely. I think, obviously, I come from a basketball background. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll reference basketball examples today, just because obviously, it's a sport I know best. But I think a lot of these similarities um, that I have in my sport are exactly the same in lacrosse. And obviously, there are a lot of, sim you know, similar concepts, style of, play, style of play principles, which I think are shared between lacrosse and basketball. And, you know, before we get into all of that, I think, this kind of fundamental issue is is it's a plague which is in not just basketball but lacrosse and many other sports whereby coaches believe that 
players have to be taught these very, very specific rigid techniques. Typically without defense, we call it one on zero, two on zero, AKA on air, because you're playing against air, you know, there's no defense. And coaches believe that players have to have these things down and they have to be drilled before players are capable of doing skillful sequences in games. And I think this, it really, the article I did, it built on um, just a lot of my kind of years of observations and practices all over the world, where I really believe players are actually being held back from fulfilling their, their potential because of this reductionist approach. And, you know, we'll get into this now, but I think something you talk about, Jamie, which really kind of makes sense here is how, especially in basketball, a lot of the fundamentals are spoken about are fake. And really they refer to techniques that occur in a vacuum. And when we actually play the game and the ball is tipped off, it's a chaotic, uh, complex system. We can't control it. The defense is there. Teammates are in different locations. Every situation is different. None of these techniques, which are drilled in this vacuum, actually are actually even used in the game. It's always something very different. And, you know, things like the two-hand chest pass with the wrists down, shooting form one hand. I'm sure it's exactly the same with lacrosse. You add a defense, all these things are different. Yeah, and lacrosse, it's overhand passing, um, which, you know, is something that people would say you have to have. And yet when you look at playmaking situations, it's the same as the chest pass. You got to throw it around people and around hands and you have to make it. It's it's never as direct um, it's funny cause you talk about how there's no such thing as muscle memory. Um, what do you mean by that? So it's, it's really funny. It's, I think I've had NBA dinners where, you know, on a table of like 20 coaches and coaches are talking about muscle memory and I'm like, guys, there's no such thing as muscle memory. And they'll be like, well, you know, what about all these countless players who have done thousands and thousands of the same blocked repetitions, you know, spot shooting, like shooting threes in the same location every time, no variation. And they're like, you know, these players are building their muscle memory. There's no such thing. Your muscles don't actually have a uh, memory to remember how to execute a motor pattern. And, and I think essentially it's, it's the classic information processing approach, the idea and coaches are believing that humans and athletes are basically like supercomputers and robots and they're able to store these exact memories of how to execute skills and then bring it out in the game but none of the research and the evidence which actually exists in terms of skill acquisition and how we self-organize as human beings to move let alone perform a sports skill none of the research uh, would suggest that um, there's any such concept as muscle memory and so dynamic systems and ecological psychology are two of the really important concepts um, that you're just referenced. Can you explain what those are and how it works and how does it apply to, to learning? Absolutely. So I think basically when you add those two things, you end up with ecological psychology. And this is a, ba a way we can look at sports teams, athletes in any sport and actually how they perform and execute skills within, within their environments. So dynamic systems theory is, is essentially the idea that sports and human beings are complex systems. Systems We're very unpredictable, all right? We can't, it's, it's not very easy to predict and control things in these sports, especially a sport like lacrosse. You know, every, if you watch a lacrosse game, every possession is different. 
right? But typically in terms of how practices and practices are, things are very drilled. There's no defense. Players execute neat drills and patterns. And then in the game, it's very different to that. Um, ecological psychology is the idea of affordances and perception action coupling. So essentially, so take you, say you take a lacrosse player in possession of the ball, their ability to be skillful is basically whether they act on different affordances, opportunities for action. So for instance, maybe spotting, uh, they perceive an open player so they're able to self-organize their body, going back to the dynamic systems theory, based on the constraints in front of them, for instance, where the defender is positioned, where their teammates are, so they're able to self-organize their body to pass. So it's not a case of this player having a stored kind of model for how to pass the ball because every situation is different. So they're perceiving, the lacrosse player is perceiving things in their environment. Where's the defense? What's the spacing? What's the, how much time have we got on the clock? And the idea is these different constraints shape the movement solution and the skill that we see. Um, and, and then that's the action part, perception, action coupling. So essentially the constraint-led approach is kind of, you know, the theory, a big theory that underpins ecological psychology. Um, and this is kind of, it, it helps us as coaches understand that skills actually emerge in the face of these constraints. They're not fixed things and they're certainly not techniques and fundamentals. So dynamic systems is that hu human movement behaviors are self-organizing. That means you just do it. And, th and that's exactly it. We do it in the face of constraints. So the, the unique situation. Exactly. And, you know, there are, I'd say the task constraints, the situation are the most pragmatic one for coaches. Individual constraints can shape that too. For instance, a player's size, their height in relation to the defender, but the task constraints are the most important thing. And this is the thing, Jamie. I mean, there are studies where eight showing that 18-month-year-old babies were self able to self-organize to hit and catch soft balls that were flown at different velocities near them. Yet many players believe, many coaches, sorry, believe that players aged 12 years old, 18 year old years old, and even professionals can't self-organize their bodies to perform their skills. They believe they have to be taught these specific things first. And that's just completely not the case. Well, it's, it's amazing too, because when you really think about it, there are so many situations that athletes have been through. We've all been through, or if you have kids, you've seen it with your kids where you've done something that you've never done before. Exactly. And this is the thing, Jamie, like the easiest thing I'd say for lacrosse coaches listening to this is picture your team playing and all the most creative things your players have done. And there's a very, very, very likely chance that most of those things were impossible for you to even teach because the scope and the number of possibilities and you kind of you're basically fighting an uphill battle if you're trying to teach these techniques because there are just simply so many different solutions that can emerge in the context of a complex game. And so that's dynamic systems. And then ecological psychology has to do with perception, action, coupling. Nothing, Absolutely. No technique occurs prior to perception, action, no. coupling. It's, it's a constant process. So, you know, this is a, a deep thought, but basically we perceive to act, i.e., you know, move some type of motor pattern and we act to perceive, right? And it's these two, we can't 
break down the technique, the action, and coach it separate separately from the perception. It's impossible to plug a technique back into the context of the game because players don't actually understand the perceptual cues and when they're doing these things. And, you know, the problem is even, it's even worse when you're doing these with younger players because coaches are like, okay, they have to do this first before, before they're older and they can do more advanced skills because younger players don't actually understand when they're even doing these things in a game. They have to understand the, you know, how to actually look for information in their environment and, and not, you know, those are the, that's the affordance part of this and then act. And that's literally what, what any team sport is all about. It's funny because when you say there's no such thing as muscle memory, I would actually uh, say, you know, sort of jokingly, but seriously, the muscle memory is, is what kids do when they just basically are fitting square pegs and round holes because they've been taught a technique that they're supposed to do and they do it at the wrong time. And, th- you know, in lacrosse, you throw the ball right into someone's stick because you were told to throw overhand. Oh, that, that's yeah, exactly. where, honestly, that's it. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. it. And there's evidence that where, where kids are basically given these blocked constant drills with the same techniques, um, it can actually lead to that where play, they, they start doing those things in games at the wrong time because they, they're just not attuned, i.e. they can't pick up the right information in their environment. They're basically, it's the, I call it the Harvard gorilla effect. Everyone knows the Harvard gorilla, if you put it on YouTube, right, where you have to basically, it's, it's an experiment done. There's a white team passing a basketball and you focus on the white team passing the ball and you'll get so intent on that that you miss the gorilla when he comes and walks in the middle of the circle. And that's the same thing with these fundamentals and these very rigid patterns and ways to run offense. You actually miss the right information that's right in front of your eyes. Now, a lot of skeptics would say, but I see my son, my daughter, my players getting better at these skills right in front of me at this private lesson or at this practice. I see them being able to be able to execute these skills. And, and, and that's true. The, the, the fact is you can teach anybody anything and they can do it on air. The question is, and this is where, this is how I came to where I am now five years ago was I was, I just didn't understand why players that I knew could do, let's just say 150 different variations of passing and and shooting and dodging and hesitations and deception. I had this list, you know, you're a list guy. I'm a list guy too. I had like lists and lists and lists. And, and I knew they knew how to do them because we had done them all. We had done them in, on air, but we'd also done them against competition. However, when we would do them, sometimes I would script it and I would be like, execute, you know, let's do this, you know, three on two, dodgy alley, get a hesitation move, get a, you know, get a pull pass throwback and execute all these things. And they could do all of it on command. And what I've realized and, and what I'd like you to speak on is the execution of the skill is not the hard part. Everybody can do that. Anything that you're executing, everybody can do. That's not the hard part. It's exactly exception action coupling. That's the hard part. And that's what you've got to practice. It is. And it's like, I think we have to, as coaches, we have to look deeper at what skill is. And yes. So for me, under the ecological framework, for me, skill is simply the relationship between a lacrosse player and their environment, i.e. the game or what, you know, what practice kind of small sided game is going on. And, you know, the environment has to be task representative. What I mean by that is 
it has to have the same affordances in, in, in a practice environment that would exist in a game. So, for instance, if you're doing a drill without defense, you're not having the same affordances that exist in the game because the goal of a defender is to provide an affordance, an opportunity for varied actions, right? So skill is simply the relationship between the player and their environment. And it emerges in every possession. Skills constantly emerge as a result of these changing constraints because obviously you can't ever repeat the same situation in lacrosse, right? Even... It, you know, finish it like shots on goal. They might look similar, but they're never going to be exactly the same, right? Every, and every movement, therefore, is never going to be exactly the same. So the idea is that instead in practice, instead of teaching like this checklist of techniques and things, as lacrosse coaches, as basketball coaches, soccer coaches, whatever, we have to be creating this environment where players have these affordances, they can self-organize, and that is how they become skilled. It's, it's not being taught all these techniques, going through a list where everyone does the same thing. Every player is different. So we're really allowing them within their environment to come up with moving solutions that suit them. And of course, we, you know, we use constraints in terms of the rules for small-sided games, how many players there are, the, like the, the scoring system used. And these constraints you know, can nudge players towards these solutions, but we're not telling them how to do it. That's the key difference skills are solutions to the situations that the athletes are facing in real time. The affordances are basically what they're giving you. And so therefore exactly. if it's on air, they're giving you everything. <laughs> there's no, there's nothing prescribed. Yeah. No affordances. Exactly. Um, yeah. and, um, and, and likewise, you know, I did a, I did a podcast a couple of years ago um, on fundamentals um, which I it. believe fundamentals are the principles, uh, possession. That's a fundamental. You got to be able to possess the ball to be able to win the game, which means you have to be able to complete passes and protect the ball and, and deal with pressure. Uh, shot selection has to do with possession. Shot selection is an incredibly important fundamental. Um, you talk about that, you know, endlessly in your, in, in your webinar, um, and yeah. feed selection too. I mean, it's kind of the same thing. Uh, seeing, yeah. seeing the field, seeing the court, um, deception is a fundamental. Um, why would you ever um, allow for your opponent to, you know, why would you tell them what you're doing before you do it? Why, why not make them guard your yeah. fake, which they will, which they have to. A ball pressure could be a fundamental uh, on both sides of the ball. What are your thoughts on these fundamentals more as principles than as techniques? Yeah, totally. And that's, you know, it's really funny, Jim. That's, I mean, that's for me, that's exactly what they are. And I've, I've actually had to stop just using the word fundamental because of in basketball coaching circles, it's so misunderstood. Yes. Right. And it's like, that's why I'm now actually just calling them concepts or, or I'm just saying solutions. Mm -hmm. So like in the context of passing, I want a young player to have as many different solutions as possible right? Passing in different locations over defense and, you know, over the defense who are coming from different angles to teammates in different distances away, different speeds they're cutting at, different approaches, you know, whether the passer has momentum or they're static. That's what I want. Not one technique repeated over and over again. Right. And so then as a coach, you may say, well, uh, how do I teach all these things? And, and the answer is you don't, the game does, the situation does, the, um, it, it, the constraints do, and the environment does. So 
What does that mean? Well, if you want to work on passing and catching and possession, uh, play keep away. Um, and then you can figure out various, uh, all different variations of keep away. You could have a two-on-one keep away with very, very uh, lower level players where they're simply just trying to throw it around the, the stick or the, the hands of the defender. You could do this in basketball too. Uh, a three-on-two would be a little more dynamic. Uh, a five-on-five five with a confined space. Now you're talking about, you know, real pressure. Um, and in lacrosse, you could add or subtract long poles. Um, long poles make it a lot harder for the offense uh, or, you know, to handle against. Uh, and it makes it a lot harder for a player to handle with their long pole. But this is how you design practices thinking of constraints. Um, thoughts on that? So let's, I really like this example of pass keep away. And I do this a lot. So for me, you know, that's an example of one small side of game and you can just add so many very task constraints and literally coaches would be better off doing something like pass keep away with some slightly different task constraints each time they play it. The, and the, if they did that every practice with a youth team, like twice a week, whatever, the results they'd see would be amazing. And so just to give coaches kind of practical ideas. So you know, constrain the space. Obviously, the smaller the space is, the harder the pass keep away is going to be for the offense. The larger the space, obviously, you know, the easier it is. Number of players, like you said, so you could play with younger players. You might have a two against two, but you have a permanent plus one who wears a different color vest and they're always on offense. So they always have a plus one. It's a little bit easier. Then, you know, I play, I do that with some different task constraints too. So for instance, every time you pass, one of the players has to go and touch the boundary line that they're playing in. So it creates a temporary disadvantage. So it gives affordances for defense to maybe trap, right? And then, and then they recover. So they, they go from the, a one against two back to the two on two. Could be something like we play with a direction. So it's pass, keep away, but maybe it becomes like a touchdown. So like, you know, one team's trying to get the other to the boundary line, maintaining possession or, or whatever. Then we could do things like if one uh, offensive player, every time they receive the ball in the keep away, it's worth three points instead of one point. So say they've got to get to, say they've got to get as a team to 10 points, right? 10 points to, to get, a, get the win. If, um, if there's a deflection or the other team gets the ball, it resets to zero. But every time this player gets the ball, they get three points. So naturally, the defense is going to have to figure out what are we going to do to really prevent this player getting it? Now you're getting in your defensive behaviors too. And this is the good thing with small-sided games. You're not just focusing on the offense, everything you're doing together. And this is why coaches are really obsessed in basketball, like offensive drills, defensive drills, transition drills. I don't have anything like that because everything happens at the same time within the ecological approach. Right. All right, let's um let's talk. You referenced this a little bit, but I want to um I want to just dig in so people know what the constraints led approach is all about. Um as it relates to the various constraints of individual task and environmental. But first of all, how would you define constraints led approach? I think it's I'm I'm what I'm trying to do now, Jamie, is put it into really kind of simple terms and trying to avoid going too much into the science for coaches. So, so for me, it's like for coaches listening, I think, think, imagine every kind of thing you're doing in a practice instead of running drills, small sided games. So basically three things. Number one, 
is there an offense and a defense, an opposition, right? That's number one. So now automatically, any drill you do, you can use the same drills, but just add a defender and you've got a small-sided game, right? Number two, is there some type of direction that you're playing in, okay? So for instance, you know, is the, the goal of the offense to get the ball somewhere on the pitch or to get, get a goal? Is there actually something that's going to look similar to what happens in the game? And then number three, is there a, an immediate consequence? So for instance, maybe if the, the offense takes a shot on goal, maybe instead of the play finishing there, they have to immediately transition to something. And it could be as simple as playing defense for like five or 10 seconds after or guarding the ball up into a certain line, but trying to play with the different phases of the game. Now, I don't always do that last one. For instance, I might just do a one-on-one and sometimes I might finish it the moment the defense gets the ball if I'm doing like a player development session, small group. But I'd say most of the time in our team practices, we play with those two things. And and for me, it's if we look at the constraints-led approach, it's like, are we essentially using small-sided games which have the same kind of similarities within them that the players will actually see when it comes to their games? Um, and that, to me, is what the constraint-led approach is. And the coaches, are they're not instructors. They're not teaching techniques. They're, they're creating these learning environments with these small-sided games where the players can self-organize and come up with all these solutions to themselves. Yeah. And it's where the, the coach really becomes more like the, uh, the uh, official of the game more so exactly. than, than the teacher. Um, exactly. Just make and, sure the game is running. Yeah, absolutely. And just on this stream, I think it's like a lot of coaches struggle with this part because it's like, like, well, it's so different, you know, to go from, where in a traditional environment where the coach has all the knowledge and they're kind of like the practice and the players are so reliant on them hand speed hand feeding them all the information versus this constraint led approach but you know there are times of course you're giving feedback and for me feedback is a task constraint in itself right because the right feedback can help players actually look for the right affordances but the key thing is the feedback can't be too specific and be absolutist i.e you know can only do this exactly it's more of course you know good coaching is giving feedback of course i still believe that within the constraint that approach but you're being creative with how you do it and you're really you know, getting players to focus their attention on things at the right time. And of course, I will say this, Jamie, there are some things, especially in my sport basketball, which are very specific and players will not, and I'm not talking about techniques. What I'm talking about is more actions. I call them triggers. Okay. And some of these triggers players are not going to, at the beginning, they're not going to just do them naturally. Right. So in these situations, it's like I'll show them maybe using film or I just show them, but as I show them it, I'm saying this solution, as you use it, many different affordances could open up. You know, for instance, if it's a pick and roll and a slip, you know, you've got this on your principles of play course. There could be so many different options. And I say we're slipping. I don't want you to only look to pass to the roller. I'm showing you what a slip is, but I want you to explore different solutions and different affordances while this slip occurs. Okay. And, and that's a key difference to the traditional approach where, 
you know, we have kind of rigid patterns, which players are expected to run until the end of the pattern. And miraculously, they should be able to score a goal when they finish running that pattern. But no, I want players who can just be adaptable and go off script early on to start an advantage. That to me is what basketball is all about. Yeah, and lacrosse too. I mean, the, yep. uh, an adaptable player. What could be yep. more important? Now, I want to I want to uh, just um, um, talk for a second about Canadian box lacrosse. I can't remember if we spoke about this. But I think we spoke about that. that. Yep. Canadian box lacrosse. Most of the listeners on here know, but it it is its own environment that is different than field lacrosse, even though it's very much the same sport. And and it teaches many things better than field lacrosse. Why? Well, the small net makes players get to the middle. They, yeah. they can't, they do not have the uh, uh, affordance to shoot with low angle. They must get to the middle. And, and there's nothing more important than that. Canadians, not surprisingly, have shot 20% better than Americans for 10 plus years in Division One lacrosse. Oh. 13 of the top 20 all-time goal scorers in Division I men's lacrosse are Canadian and huh. box players, even in the PLL. Huh. The Canadians won the championship offensively. And I think something like seven of the top 11 rated players in the PLL are, are Canadian and native box lacrosse players. And yet um, we're not, we know this, we know box lacrosse does things. The shot clock, for example, removes a lot of the coaching control. So now that the guy, they have to just go play that you can't pull it out and settle it down and, 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 and um, just, control everything uh, as you know as a coach might with it with a chessboard um the small sidedness of it obviously i mean you know it's a five on five game so it, you know that's the max you know i guess six on five in a quick little uh you know power yeah. situation when you pull your goalie but yes it's a five on five game whereas field across is a 10 on 10 game imagine if basketball was 10 on 10 and actually 24 people played in the game how many fewer reps you would get when you were playing that exactly. game? um you know, and because of the small area, the boards and glass, the ball stays in. So therefore the ball never goes out. And so people get more touches and reps, particularly growing exactly. Um, And then lastly, because of the, the, the small net, everything happens tighter. And not just the angles of shooting, but the, the entire game happens closer to the middle. And so therefore you have to figure out new ways to create space. And the way they create space is not just clearing space by clearing through, because that won't work in that tight area. They won't clear through. No, you bring players together and that creates these two-man actions. And, 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 and lo and behold, it's easier to get open without the ball than with the ball. Um, and so all of a sudden you've got these, these, this constraint-led game that has created amazingly skillful and smart players. And, and uh, so anyway, I just wanted to sort of bring that up and Put it's yeah it's really funny listening to this because as an outsider to lacrosse for me in, in my sport a lot a lot of the things coaches say to me at all levels you know from grassroots to nba is like they're waiting to see someone have success with this methodology before they start doing it themselves now for me that's obviously that's the complete as an early adopter to all this stuff that's the complete opposite to how i am because i've changed my coaching based on the evidence right but for me, it's amazing. I'm, and I'd be surprised that if I'm sure there's resistance in the cross world to this stuff, but I'm surprised that that existence exists because you already have an amazing case study with actual evidence as to, you know, how this approach can be more, more beneficial in, in the, in the field of lacrosse game. So, uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So everything becomes a constraint, the length of your stick. You know, yeah. so for example, if you're a little kid, you would rather use a smaller basketball because if you don't, that constraint of a bigger, heavier basketball and a higher rim exactly. will change the way you're able to learn how to play the game. It's the same thing in lacrosse when you got little kids with like long poles that are like well over their head. There's just no way they're going to learn how to play the game as well as if they had a, a stick that allowed them, you know, strength wise to do things. I mean, everything is a constraint. Yeah, sure is. All right, so let's talk a little bit now. Let's 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 um let's just talk before we move on to what I call principles based offense and what you call conceptual offense. Really quickly, what 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 are the um, you referenced it a second ago, but what is the science as far as how we got here? What is the actual evidence? Okay, great question. So I would suggest that coaches first take a look at some of the work done by Nikolai Bernstein. Um, and there's actually a lot of work, a lot of these studies are access accessible online. So if coaches want to read them, they can. And Bernstein, I mean, Bernstein's work, it was a lot of his pioneering research was done in the 1960s. So it's existed for decades, but it's only now that we're just kind of a sports coach is starting to you know, delve into this world and, and modernize how we, how we coach our sports. So Bernstein um, basically looked at how the human body moves and he looked at something called the degrees of freedom problem. Um, and then he used the, used the phrase called repetition out repetition, you know, suggesting that it's constraints which affect how the body moves due to self-organization it's not these stored mental kind of tech, techniques that we have in the brain that we then bring out and execute. Um, so I'd say coaches check that out. The, the irony is, and it's like here in Italy, I come out into contact with a lot of coaches who did motor learning at university. And, you know, a lot of coaches, basketball coaches here, professional coaches studied that. And it's crazy because all the motor learning um, kind of syllabuses and curriculums at university is completely out of date. Um, typically it's like the inf information processing approach. So instead I would suggest coaches um, look at some of the, some of the work in, in the ecological dynamics space. Um, some of the key names here would be Keith Davids, uh, Renshaw, uh, Duarte Arajo. And, you know, these, these are the researchers who have come up with all this stuff. And now it's, you know, left to us, coaches like us, Jamie and our specific sports, the kind of, interpret the research and show coaches what this looks like in our specific domains. Awesome. All right. Let's, let's talk a little bit about how you apply these concepts uh, to, to right. team. And we can start with, with, with team offense. And it's, it's really funny as I read your content and how, um, how we, we talk about a lot of the same things and use some different terminologies um, and box across they have simultaneous actions going on all the time sure. on ball and off ball, two man to three man actions and passing that creates advantages. Um, and basketball is very, very similar, but how would you sort of just define your conceptual offense and how do you. Okay. So I, I created this conceptual offense kind of idea um, because I wanted a play style, which aligned with the ideas of 
um, ecological dynamics. For instance, repetition at repetition, me not controlling everything as the coach and the players being the ones to come up with the solutions. And for me, there wasn't anything kind of out there in the Barcelona world in terms of, you know, a lot of coaches running um, very rigid set plays. And you see this in the NCAA. For, I'm sure coaches have watched NCAA basketball. It's honestly, I found it really difficult to watch this year because it's just these old school motion offenses, which were done in like the 1970s, still being used today and set plays whereby coaches expect players to run these patterns through to the end. And then hopefully magically a good shot will appear. And it's just players just aren't adaptive. I didn't see skilled players who had good solutions for what the defense was doing. So basically my idea is that, again, we firstly, it all starts with shot selection and seeking out the highest percentage, highest value shots possible. In basketball, that would be wide open finishes in the smile, which is the restricted area that we have here in FIBA, like right under the basket or wide open three pointers off the catch and shoot. So pass the ball, catch it, shoot it, as opposed to off the dribble, but we will shoot off the dribble for wide open. We typically avoid like contested shots and things in the mid-range area. Just from a points per, points per possession standpoint, it's not as efficient. So then basically we reverse engineer the offense. And this is what I do, I you know, and how I framed it to my guys. I said, how are we going to be in the best situations to generate these shots consistently? And obviously it forms your defense too, because once you have an idea as to what shots you want, you know what you're trying to take away on the defensive end and what you're actually trying to encourage and bait the other team into taking. So we, we call it like a cracked iPhone 3G. So it's like if you take a contested fadeaway in the mid-range, it's a cracked iPhone. If you take a wide open corner three, it's an iPhone 13. And the an analogy is imagine you're in the Apple store for 24 seconds. That's the length of the shot clock in basketball. Every few seconds, the Apple employees are giving you a new iPhone. If you get an iPhone 13 or iPhone Pro Max on 21 seconds, you're going to take it and leave because you got, you know, it's the best iPhone. Whereas if you get the 3G at 20 seconds, you're going to keep staying in that shop so you get something better. So, see, you can see this is the analogy we use for shot selection. And if the good shot comes early, we're taking it. All right. But anyway, transition is simply all the evidence at any level of the game, NCAA, high school, NBA the highest value shots are in transition just because the defense are disorganized. You can have numerical advantages and um, it's, you're way more likely to generate these high value shots than if you're playing against the set defense. So we want to play fast. We call it fast and furious. So a lot of these terms across coaches can use too. So basically it begins as soon as we get the ball, it's a lag free reaction. So the opposite to that is the spinning wheel of death that you have on the Mac, right? The lag. So what we want is all players, every player, they start sprinting immediately. There's no lag, right? And already you start advantages because you're in front of the, the defense. And we call it a bolt. So they basically they have to start running, at the, running up the court at the, at the speed of Usain Bolt. That's all it is. And we don't have a traditional point guard. It's whoever gets the ball is going. And of course, if there's a pass ahead, they make it but we're not reliant on just initiating the offense of the same player because, again, that's slow and it allows the defense to get back. The idea is simply with the conceptual offense, we play as fast as we can. And then if we're neutral, and neutral to me is the terminology for no advantage. So we see all the defense in front of us. We don't have players ahead in space. We don't have a good opportunity for a one-on-one. -on -one. 
we're neutral, we have to run an action, aka a trigger, like a pick and roll, a screen away to start dominoes and create an advantage. So dominoes to us is, the, I use these analogies to just put players' attention on the right things. It's not like a very strict framework. It's just a concept, right? So dominoes, what we do when we have an advantage and we play in zero seconds, so pass, drive, shoot with zero seconds without freezing. And we basically want to keep the dominoes until we shoot. And the idea is that these triggers, pick and roll, screenaways, pistol, things like that, the players just come up with a coverage solution based on how the defense defends it, the task constraint to start dominoes. And that's it. So it's a really, and it's just, it's so unpredictable. Every offense is different and it's impossible for teams to prepare for us and scout us because, you know, with every possession is different and it's, it's such a fun way of playing. And I mean, we've had incredible success with it. A, a lot of my guys will go on to good NCAA or professional careers and it's simply they're capable of things which players their age are just not doing or given the chance to do. So cool. Um, shot selection, you know, is, is one of the biggest indicators of winning percentage in lacrosse. Um, shot selection has, in lacrosse has to do with your stick to the middle, has to do with um, right. shoot at a higher percentage with your stick to the middle. You'll shoot at a higher percentage off the catch than you will, you know, assisted shots score at a higher percentage than unassisted shots. Two-man actions tend to score at a higher percentage than isolation uh, because it subtracts defenders from the help. And um, in lacrosse, obviously, there's, you know, men's, there's six players, and women's, there's seven. Um, it, it, it honestly makes two-man two game and three-man game that much more important to subtract defenders from the help. Um, and it allows you to have more actions going on. It is exactly. easier to create an advantage with a two-man action. Exactly. Because the, the defense has to decide how they're going to cover it. And if you understand what that coverage solution is, AKA the read, yeah. you can punish the defense because of it. So if they switch, you can slip. Right. If they sag in, you can seal. If they go under the pick, you can pop or flare. And if they follow you over, you curl. And these things, these are the things I think that you're referencing with your players that they know how to do. It's coverage solutions. It's reading more so than anything else that is your greatest upside um yeah, exactly. and the absolute um unpredictability of it means that nobody can scout what you're doing but you know exactly what your opponent is doing oh for sure and it, it's so it's funny because i mean i've got some games on my team on the youtube channel it's like you see like almost pretty much every team we play in europe is quite traditional it's like it's we're like the complete opposite what we're doing on offense and the defense it's just it's so easy to disrupt them because as soon as my players see the pattern like three times, so like a minute into the game, they know what's coming. And then we just start really disrupting them. We give them a different coverage and they don't have a solution for that coverage. So we call them prisoners of the coverage because they don't know what to do. And we, we are never prisoners of the coverage on offense. We want to punish any coverage that we see. And for, for me, it's like, as soon as we punish the coverage, we're, we're then just applying dominoes concepts. So the play, well, you know, the offense is off. We're not, we don't need triggers because we've already got that advantage. And you still see other teams, they, you know, they might have a massive advantage in the set and they continue running their pattern. It's, it's incredible. And it's, it's, it's the classic Harvard gorilla. And, and, you know, we do have set plays, right? 
but we only use the set plays on dead balls. So we call it a ref touch. So whenever the ref touches the ball for like a violation or a substitution, we use, we can't play fast, obviously, right? Because the defense is set. So then we go to a set play, which is more elaborate. But again, it's like every set play will be slightly different because we do something different every time within the set. So I make it very, I design it really creatively and it gets to a point of the set where the players have to make a decision to go off script and do something else. So, and the whole analogy I'll use for this, Jamie, is classical versus jazz. And it's, yeah. for me, it's it's jazz every day with the way we play. Um, it's it's uh, it's really interesting to, to listen to you continue to explain all these things. And, and, and really, I came to a conclusion where I was thinking about traditional field lacrosse offense, which I've spent my whole lifetime studying these sets where you have, you know, it, it, you have isolations and dodges and, and movements and, and options, motion options, uh, where you're trying to draw a double team and move the ball quickly enough and have good spacing to allow your, allow your uh, offense to beat, beat the defense and cr create good shots. And a lot of it was pretty similar. But the thing that I found with most traditional, what I'll call field across paradigm offenses, is that they're just predictable. Exactly. Everybody knows when and from where you're attacking. Exactly. And, and they know how to defend it because they can see it and they know what's going on. And that's why when you sort of just start running actions, yeah. it builds on itself amazingly. It scales. If you literally keep picking on and off ball and keep teaching coverage solutions, every single one of those reps is going to allow a player to learn a little bit better, especially if you can use some film and we can chat about that. But, sure. but all of a sudden, you essentially kind of, you know, the, the field and field and field across the, the shot clock is like 60 seconds. So you've got actually a lot of time, which is, which is another interesting topic, but you, you, if you just keep playing, keep away, you're going to have, I think minimum of two actions every five seconds. And yeah. so in 30 seconds, you know, you could have a lot of actions, right? And, that, that's a lot of affordances too for, yeah break the defense down like in basketball it's not the case because obviously 24 is a lot limited and within yeah. that time realistically you can probably only get to say the first trigger doesn't work and it, that happens a lot jamie because simply we miss we miss a affordance yeah. and yeah. we don't slip it was all there the but you just didn't really take advantage good. of it right exactly all the timing the timing's just out of sync that's the main one actually but timing is probably the main thing in resulting in either successful or not successful coverage solutions but again it's no big deal because if we don't get something we're just into the next trigger we call it a re-trigger so say we do a pick and roll maybe we miss it and then we go into like a flare screen or maybe a dribble handoff or we get the ball into the post and then we flare or grenade it so it's like we're just relentless so you know in lacrosse when you got so much more time and also what we sometimes talk about is running triggers simultaneously. So the ball handler, the guy in possession of the ball, could be running a trigger like a pick and roll, a duet. I call it two-man game, a duet. Yep. With the offense being jazz, you know, all this stuff. So yep. you're running your duet here. And then maybe on the weak side, you're also running a duet off the ball with like a flare screen. So it's like, you know, think of how many opportunities there are. The thing is, when you're playing all these traditional teams, they have no idea how, how to actually apply different defensive coverages consistently or to use different coverages. What you'll typically see in basketball at the youth level is teams are lazy and they just have one defensive coverage and it's a bad switch, like a weak, soft switch. They don't have anything else. 
So it's so easy to break these teams down when you have players who are really attuned to all the potential solutions they could use and they've actually got the freedom to do it. So last year I coached a girls high school team and um, we ran this principles based offense. We had two three man sides and one player behind that would integrate into a three into a three man side. And um, we had our, our actions, you know, we're on and off ball uh, picks, slips, seals, um, and we would tell our defense every day, you call it guided defense. I was calling it scripted defense, but we would just say, look, um, either push out and don't switch, um, and switch if you have to late or don't switch and go under or switch or double. And we would give these different looks to our offense within the scope of every single small sided game or whether even if it wasn't small side if it was full 77 work um this is how we would we, we would play it um and it's a it's the way you teach without teaching you just make sure your defense gives you different looks and that's the the lazy the lazy switch you're talking about is also kind of lazy coaching because if you yeah. don't give yourselves different looks, then you're not going to understand these different affordances that the defense. Oh no way! And and also, it's like for us, like the defensive coverage is so important to have in practice because that's how the offense gets better. Yeah. And it's like, how can you expect your players to get good if they're just playing into the same thing every every time on defense? They're not actually learning to explore their environment and come up with different solutions that all exist at the higher levels. So. I mean, we, we have coverages and we actually, so for instance, on a pick and roll, there are maybe seven different ways we could defend a pick and roll, but the players will choose them and it's all based on the task and individual constraints. For instance, if we have like our, re- our biggest defender who's a little bit slower, he can choose a coverage that he's comfortable with versus if we have someone who's really fast, they could call something different. Or maybe, for instance, if we have a particular spacing where we, it's called a next coverage, where the player in the single gap next to the pick runs at the ball handler. We call the next. And, you know, each coverage we have it, all my guys come from different countries in Europe, 10 different countries. So we give it, each coverage is, a, is the language for that word in, sorry, the name for that word in a different country. So we're really deceptive. We don't have colors. So they're calling out these different languages and just teams have no idea. <laughs> I love it. So... As you mentioned earlier, um, basketball, lacrosse, it's unpredictable. It's a complex system. And so many people's idea is to try to control it. And and it makes you feel more comfortable as a coach when you control things because you're you're getting an outcome that you already uh, know is going to happen. And and, um, typically, this works great in practice and against um, low-level competition. Uh, but when you get to really high level competition, it doesn't really work that well. Or it works if you're just a lot. Yeah. Well, back to low level competition. If you're a lot better than your opponent, you can kind of do whatever you want. But when exactly. all of a sudden the competition level is is keen and the coaching is good. Um, n- now you have to be able to allow your players to play and adapt and trust them. And um, it's very, very difficult because there's this uh, there's this feeling that, you know, if you're a good coach, you do have control over things. And if you're a bad coach, then you just roll the ball out. Um, and, um, you know, there's a little bit of truth in both of those. Uh, uh, there's a little bit of incorrectness in both of those statements, too. Um, to be able to understand how to control an environment that's going to give you a result and an opportunity for your players to learn, that's the kind of control that coaches want to be able to have. That's the control you want. 
control the environment that's going to create an effect, that's going to create a player, it's going to where a skill may emerge. For sure, for sure. And it's it's changing the perception too as to what coaching is. I, I think that's the the biggest thing which will help both our sports, coaches being kind of accepting their new role and being architects of a representative learning environment at the end of the day. So um, you checked out a little bit of the site um, and you referenced in one of the emails uh, that you sent me earlier that you loved the various little games. Uh, those games, by the way, Alex, that you saw with tennis balls and mixed boys and girls and small nets, that is the equivalent of box lacrosse. Sure. Okay. It's a smaller net. And so everything happens closer. And um, all the other games that we play create different affordances. Yeah, that's it. Sometimes they're on one side and they're all even. Sometimes they're uneven. Sometimes, you know, the kids love to play this bigger game called five by, which is a five on five game because it's the closest thing to like real across. It's got bigger numbers. It's got more complexity on both sides of the ball. Um, But but then again, you know, I I saw a really, really cool. drill you posted on on shooting variability where you had one player feeding one player um cutting who's going to receive a ball and then one player defending and you used a couple of chairs out there as uh as like a staggered screen situation where they were working on you know basically giving a defensive look for the offensive player to get open and and these are the kinds of games that we also play it's so funny that game i call d squared p squared it's dodger defender picker passer and and you basically play an on ball off ball one-on-one and you just play um so uh it's it's really cool stuff for anybody out there um go to basketball immersion you can study alex sarama's uh i mean the guy's written a lot um, on, <laughs> on twitter it's endless um i mean i'm just digging in i watched your uh your webinar that you posted the other day twice i took notes on it twice even. oh thanks jamie um so it's really really cool stuff and um i really appreciate you coming on the show thank you so much i love the work you're doing and uh i um, i think coaches can see some cool content from us when we're in uh in denver in june yeah together. Sure. i'm really we'll looking forward to uh to meet with you and um i got a basketball court in my backyard maybe we'll have to play a little hoops love it thanks so much jamie <laughs> all right alex hey have a great day man take care Thank you.